Hi, friends. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you like what we talk about here on the Belonging Podcast, I think you'll really love my book. It's called Root and Ritual, Timeless Ways to Connect to Land, Lineage, Community, and the Self. And it is available right now wherever books are sold. It is a beautifully illustrated guide to connecting with the earth, your ancestors, and your communities as you come home to your whole self. Though we live in a radically different looking world, the needs of our bodies and spirits are the same as the ancestors we come from. I divide this book into four parts, land, lineage, community, and self, and I take you on a journey for engaging more deeply with your life. I provide stories from my own life, and I share rituals, recipes, and ancestral wisdom, journal prompts to support you on your individual and unique and sacred path. You can get more info and bonuses at rootandritualbook.com and pick it up at your favorite bookstore online or in person. Thanks for all your support. It means the world to me. Welcome to Belonging, a podcast that explores how to come home to yourself in the age of loneliness. I'm Becca Piastrelli, your host and guide on a journey of courageous reconnection. As we explore topics like ancestral wisdom, cultivating meaningful sisterhood, living with the seasons and cycles of the earth and your body, and what it means to be a good ancestor. Hi, it's Becca Piastrelli here. Welcome back to Belonging, the podcast. I hope you are hydrating. (laughs) I'm serious. I hope you are hydrating. It is getting so dry here in Northern California. I can really feel that seasonal transition in just the drying of the leaves on the trees and just the moisture in the air just seems to not be there right now. And I'm noticing I have a little fear in my body of fire season. I live in a place that for the past two dry seasons, which for us is midsummer to late fall, the rains don't really come until November, December time. Um, The past two dry seasons, we've had some pretty horrible fires, wildfires, I'm sure I've mentioned them in episodes previous a year ago. It's it's a really scary thing I feel in my bones right now, which is a fear of the dryness. And yet the dryness has always been a part of the seasonal cycle of this land, this this place where it is the dry times. And so what can we do to cultivate moisture in our bodies and in our gardens? How can we create a hydration and a flow of emotion when we can't always rely on the waters to to come from above. So I've been thinking a lot about how I'm going to hydrate all the things <laughs> this this dry season, this summer, fall time. And I'm thinking a lot more about drinking water and um, oiling my skin. Uh, I've been uh, infusing oils, herbal oils, for the past maybe month or two, starting with rose petals and almond oil and just finished a comfrey and olive oil infusion. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, but you're interested, 
This is folk medicine. This is knowledge that our ancestors once had. You can come back to the plants. And the beauty of it is Grandmother Google is right there for you. Or perhaps there's a local herb shop or apothecary you can go into. But if you want to look up herbal oil infusions, because you want to join me in hydrating your biggest organ, being your skin, please join me. Um, You can do it whether you have a medicine garden or not, or if you live in an apartment and you're just trying to like keep a little succulent alive, there are ways to create and work with the plants to create medicines for hydration and healing. So why don't you join me with that? I think that would be fun. Bonus points if you post on Instagram and tag me because I am all about that. Today's episode of the podcast, oh my goodness, you're going to figure out pretty quick when you listen to it how much of a fan I am of this woman, Sylvia Lindstedt. So I reach out to uh, people that I want to talk to on the podcast. I don't really take submissions. It's more like intuition-based, and also I have a vetting process where I consider the diversity of who I'm interviewing and the topic of what we're talking about. And really, it's um, it's an intuitive gut check. And I reach out to a lot of these people, and sometimes they say yes, and sometimes they say no, and it's all good either way. And when Sylvia Lindstedt said yes, I basically fell off my chair. I felt like the luckiest girl in the world. <laughs> I, I'm such a fan of her work, seriously. So by the end of this episode, my hope is that you pick up some of her books or at least check her out on Patreon. If you support her on Patreon, she sends you monthly poems and short stories. And I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. Sylvia is a profoundly beautiful writer and she's very connected to the land. And what's interesting is she was born the same place I live now, Marin County, California, coastal Miwok territory. And she has such a deep understanding through her experience in animal tracking and being a beautiful observer of, of the living land, which is a term I really, really appreciate because for so much of my life, I couldn't see the land as living or I feared the living land. I feared that the land was living. I didn't treat the land as living. And Sylvia has this way of looking at the wild and seeing herself and us in it. There is a re-enchantment in her words that have touched my soul and given so much magic to my life. I feel enlivened by her words. And what's cool about this is we she we recorded this podcast. She's in Crete, Greece right now, doing incredible research for her next book and also digging deep into the pre- Indo-European, pre-patriarchal, we're talking 5,000 years ago plus, uh, life-worshipping, goddess-focused, potentially matrilineal culture of old Europe. And she has traced Crete to being one of the last bastions of this place. Oh my gosh, I'm living for all of what she's sharing, including her introducing us to an incredible woman named Maria Gimbutis, who has now passed and did a lot of the important work for those of us who want to connect to the old ways of old Europe, pre-patriarchy, pre 
Roman Empire and Maria Gambutas, we're just going to really honor her and send up blessings to her for the work she did in a time where she was really made a pariah in understanding and connecting the dots of the artifacts and her intuition and her deep knowledge. So Sylvia shares way more about that. I ask her all sorts of questions about her work and including a book, Our Lady of the Dark Country, that she wrote just after the presidential election of the United States in 2016, which for many of us felt like a very dark and scary time. And yeah, I hope, I'm just feeling very, very excited to introduce you to someone who feels dear to me. I think when you find a writer whose words just speak to things that you didn't even know there were words for, it feels like such a treat. And that is Sylvia for me. So I hope you enjoy this very deep and beautiful conversation with Sylvia Lindstedt. Well, awesome. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here with me. I have to admit, I have been such a longtime admirer of your work Mm. and I felt a little nervous Mm. coming on here with you. I also feel, I don't know if you feel this way with, with writers that you really admire, but you there's like an intimacy mm. in like your words touching my soul. So in ways I feel like as soon as we came on, I was like, hi, friend, mm. you know, and then I was like, oh, wait, hello. Nice to meet you. <laughs> yes. So I'm just feeling grateful and nervous and excited and all the feelings being here with you. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's such an honor to be here. And it's, um, it's funny how I know what you mean when we have that f- feeling about writers. And then I forget that sometimes that I am one in that way. And it's, I just feel like another person, you know, Um, and I'm really humbled when I hear that and honored when I hear that my words, which are coming from, you know, such a intimate place in me are actually touching that place in, in someone else and in a reader. And it kind of always surprises me, you know, Mm -hmm. and makes it worthwhile. I mean, this is why I write. So it's beautiful to hear that. And I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Mm. And we should say you're nine hours ahead in Greece right now. Actually 10, yes. Oh, geez. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I'm really, really grateful that you're speaking to me at your nighttime. And we'll talk a little bit more later about why you're there. Yes. Because you're actually from the land that I live on now, which is Northern California, Coastal Miwok Territory, Marin County. Are you from Marin County? I am. Are you? I am. Wow. Where? Novato. Okay. I'm from Mill Valley. Uh, it's a beautiful land. I just Wonderful. feel really happy to know that. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Actually, the first book I read of yours was um, Tatter Demalion, mm-hmm. which I have to say, I've, I can't get hard copies of it anymore, but I like find p- sellers of it <laughs> and mail it to friends. Do you, you know, it's actually out of print. Is so, it? Yeah, which is upsetting. I mean, it's great because they sold out, you know, but it's upsetting that it's not in print because people ask me and I can't really help them. Um, I'm glad you're finding, se- like, is it used sellers? Probably people are reselling it. Yeah. Yeah. And heads up, everyone, Barnes and Noble has a back stock of it. Oh, good to so, know. So, yeah. Well, I'll, the reason I, I say I mentioned that as we talk about Marin County is I could tell, I didn't know you were from this area, but you were describing it in the book mm. and I, I could pick up on it and it felt so, as I work on my sort of deprogramming and rewilding and 
really trying to, honestly, it's been sometimes a deep struggle to feel familiarity with land and like animism of land and trust of myself with the wild. Hmm. That book in so many ways has touched me. I mean, I've read it like five times, but your descriptions of this land I live on and um, in in a sort of mythic poetic future state Mm -hmm really, really affected me and, and um, fortified me to feel a deeper connection to this place. So very publicly thanking you for those words in that book. Well, th- thank you. I mean, that's, that's my deepest hope with my work and that book, but all of the work really. So I'm so glad to hear that. And I think often the writing process provides the same thing for me, if that makes sense. It's like I write... Um, to bring myself into connection in the same way that maybe it helps a reader feel that. So. Mm. Yeah. As if your words are the threads of weaving. So it's like, it's becoming a tapestry with every new word. It's like every new thread. You're like, Oh, this is what I'm making with these words. Yeah. Yeah. And really it's a love song that, that book. Well, maybe not just that one, that one, as well as the two, the wild folk and the wild folk rising, which are, middle grade children's books, but they're also set, you know, in coastal California. They feel like my love song to that land, Mm. just kind of pouring all the connection and love for all those trees and all those plants into those, those books. And so it's wonderful when somebody from that place recognizes, you know, the landscape. I've had a couple other people say, that they had that feeling, you know, about the buckeye trees, just, oh my gosh, a buckeye tree. Like, I know exactly what you mean. Wow. I can smell it. I can feel that. Yeah. So it's special to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's also struck me as I have really been in my own journey of reconnecting with my European ancestral roots, really like, oh, recognizing my colonizer ancestry and decolonizing all the things Mm -hmm. (laughs) is to see you, someone who is very much steeped in that work, be so connected to the living land, as you say, be so connected to this place that is not ancestrally, you know, yours or mine. Yeah, It's ancestrally Miwok land and yet feeling such a deep reverence and connection and, and um, reciprocity with it. I think that's something I've really struggled with. Yeah, I understand. Because I've just felt like I didn't belong. I mean, I definitely struggle with that feeling still all the time. And again, the the writing is kind of my way in to working through that, I would say. I think that um, probably the biggest thing that helped me connect in that way that you're speaking to was learning um, animal tracking, actually. Oh, Okay. I I was taking yeah I animal tracking kind of became like I mean not not for hunting um, <laughs> that is traditionally where the that knowledge is coming from is for hunting but it's I was learning in plant rays to identify the tracks and signs of the animals on the wild animals on the landscape there and it was like learning this new language that made me feel like I was connecting in real time with specific individual animals and then through them, you know, the plants that they might eat or, you know, the the plants that they were living in some kind of relationship with. And it became really personal. So it felt like my relationship with the landscape moved into the present moment instead of 
maybe feeling like aspirational. And it was completely life-changing actually for me. And a lot of that is that knowledge is poured into the books. Hmm. I really like that as an embodied way of feeling connection as opposed to buying all the books and trying to memorize all the plan identifications or, you know, that sort of Western brain approach. Actually, this is a great segue for me to talk about another one of your books I love Mm. called... Our, our, I don't know why I'm laughing. This is clearly what I'm here to do with you is talk about your amazing writing. Our Lady of the Dark Country, mm-hmm. which what I really love and find to be important, especially in this context of the Western mind versus the ancestral body, is actually your introduction mm. to this book where you talk about um, – actually, I'm going to read a little bit, yes. which says – We have come to an epistemic crossroads, a crisis of the real. I will not be able to win an argument with an archaeologist, an academic, a businessman, or possibly even an old friend by trying to state facts about the indigenous feminine traditions of Europe, which is what the book is about, about the Neolithic, about the work of Maria Gimbutas, about war, about peace, about menstruation, about sexuality, about freedom, about truth, about the heart, about the reality of magic because facts have become a slippery thing. And it seems that these days what matters is who fears what and who gains what and and not what is true. A fact is not what is true. A fact is only an arrow that points towards who has the power and what story they want to tell. Hmm. So that, that, you know, nailed it for me in the heart, which is, I mean, in many ways describing the reality of our world right now in a linear time sense, but I think it, what it really nailed for me in this, this work of belonging, of reconnecting, of, of rewilding, of feeling the connection of all things is I get really caught up in my Western mind Yeah, about memorizing facts, about being right about history, about arguing about if matriarchy is inherently a part of the human experience or existed. Yeah. Men always wanted to kill each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. like and I've had some really tense brunch conversations oh, yeah. with mansplainers who were <laughs> like, <too. laughs> you know, what are you talking about? You know, and it, it can it's even as small as like people saying to me, what's that plant good for? And me being like, what is your grandmother good for? This plant is alive. Like it doesn't have to treat mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Like that's sort of the the spectrum with which I feel like you're touching on. So I wondered if you could share anything around that because it feels so important in this time of facts. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for that reflection. That's really beautiful. And I think, you know, beginning just um, with animal tracking just a little longer because I think it's a great example. The way that I was taught is really question and observation and experience, experience oriented. So Instead of a teacher, you know, looking at something and saying, this is a coyote track. This is how, you know, I'll tell you all these things. You know, you can look at a picture in a book. They would say, what do you see? What patterns do you notice? Um, For a really long time to the point where for my like brain trained in a totally Western, like high academic tradition, you know, was really frustrating sometimes because you really want to know what it is. You want to know that you have the right answer am I right? You know, is it this? Is it this? And sometimes they wouldn't even say. I mean, this, my teachers were taught by um, John Young, who was taught by 
Tom Brown, who was taught by, and I believe, I hope I'm not wrong um, about this, Apache elder on the East Coast. So it's a Native American tracking tradition. They got passed down through many people. So it's not a Western way of learning. Mm. And there's something about curiosity being the doorway and your observation of patterns and your experience of details in the landscape so that you really have to fully open all of your senses and you are you know using your observation skills and your brain but it's just so different than learning facts from a book and I have to say that because of this I can remember like this when I finally would figure out what something was like if I wanted to know what a plant was I feel like this is how I learned all the native plants of northern California that I know which turns out to be a lot more than maybe sometimes I realize I'm like oh wow I do know a lot of them from this way of learning of having a question and, and having to learn the answer, like almost as it was like a, this beautiful mystery. What is that plant? You know, what is the gray Fox eating that he's pooping out? <laughs> They're pooping out. And this little seed, what is that seed? You know, and eventually figuring out it's coffee berry, for example, and going through this whole process of, identifying the seed, identifying the plant, having this burning curiosity that then gives me the answer in such a different way that I never forget it. It's like in my body. Yeah. And I found this to be probably one of the most healing experiences for my brain, for all sorts of things. I would like recommend animal tracking as therapy. You know, I um, have struggled with pretty intense anxiety. Like I have an intense brain. (laughs) Um, so the Western, you know, um, analytical model has not been very helpful for my brain. So this was just really healing and grounding for me. Um, and it kind of integrates, I think, our mental capacity back into the body somehow in a balanced way that feels like, okay, this is what the brain is good for, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about, um, I guess I'm interested in, so I guess I, I segued early, but I really am eating up Our Lady of the Dark Country. Yeah. And that, do you want to say a little bit more about that, what this book is, and then how that part of the introduction came to you specifically about addressing the fact that there's like in this conversation around the origins of like life worshiping goddess mm-hmm. culture, whatever it is in old Europe, like there is a tension with patriarchy there's a tension with the desire for facts there's a tension with the western mind yes so that book came to me all at once kind of um almost like I pushed it out I pushed out uh the creation of that book really quickly because it felt really urgent suddenly to me it's almost like feeling a current of something that was that's rising and has been rising and rising this need to address kind of the deep feminine in the European tradition, indigenous tradition that just has been buried for so long. So what I was thinking when you were saying that was, you know, at the moment I'm still in the work of that book. I feel like that book opened a big doorway for me a couple of years ago. So I'm researching the, you know, goddess worshiping matrilineal cultures of Crete right now. And I notice constantly this tension between what I read in the archaeological literature and what I feel in my body when I'm on the land here 
mm-hmm. processing observations and intuitions really in archaeological sites and like not really sure how to say that to an archaeologist you know this is such a different way of knowing um through intuition and through the body um and we can call it like the feminine way and we have for so long devalued this other way of knowing that it's gotten to the point where it's completely and utterly dismissed almost everywhere especially in academic circles you know so i think this book was sorry it's it's hard for me to find like what the seed was do you know what i mean like it almost yeah. feel like it came um like this birth you know just like had to come out um there's this urgency that i i keep feeling i think probably the work of Maria Gambutas, the Lithuanian archaeologist, um, kind of encapsulates this this tension that you're speaking to. She was studying the Neolithic cultures of Europe that were pre-patriarchal. And she was really sidelined once her work turned from, you know, pa- uh, patriarchal Bronze Age cultures to what came before them. And I was so like confused and frustrated and angry by seeing this happen that, you know, when Maria Gambutas was studying the, the bronze age people of Eastern Europe, she was highly celebrated for what she was saying and really respected as an archeologist. She's talking about, you know, the burial mounds of warriors and Kings. And this is great. Like she's a great archeologist, everybody, you know, she was teaching at Harvard and um, all these things. (laughs) And then suddenly when she started to say, you know, you guys, there's something underneath this culture that I'm noticing when I'm literally excavating, you know, she was excavating these sites saying there's a completely different pattern under the ground here beneath the warrior mound cultures, so to speak, you know, where there's many female figurines, there's a, a, like a lack of weaponry. There's a lack of hierarchy in burials. We don't see any evidence of very much warfare or of like kings in the way that we see later. It seems that there's a lot of temples or sacred sites in a different way. This is a different pattern, you know, it's just obviously there. And for some reason, you know, because she was suddenly speaking about quote female figurines, it's like she was sidelined, you know, and it just kind of highlighted how incredibly like white and male the archaeological tradition was at that time you know this is like the 70s um and really still is and then the other thing that happened with her is that because this was so exciting what she was finding to many women at the time like when kind of the goddess movement was beginning right at the time when she was discovering these things and she really didn't have an agenda with them like you know i've read interviews with her where she's saying you know i was just it's kind of reminds me of animal tracking. I was just observing like patterns and observing something new and different and then writing about it. I didn't have something that I wanted it to be. This is just what I saw. But then many, many, many women flocked to her work and it became part of something spiritual for them, which is really beautiful um, and was really beautiful for her. And she was very embracing of this kind of interdisciplinary way of looking at the work but that interdisciplinary way was really threatening, I think, to the sort of uh, like ivory tower of archaeology at the time. And so she became completely ostracized 
um, in her work. And to this day, like still is to the point where um, it's almost like when you talk about her, you better be careful. You know, like I feel like um, if you want to be taken seriously, yeah, like academically, you don't talk about Maria Gambutas, you know, you, especially to archaeologists, it's like, oh, no, 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 that goddess matrilineal matriarchal thing. No, come on. That's just like fantasy. Wow. And so for the longest time, I was avoiding her work. I was like, I don't know, you know, I've read all these things and she just made it all up. And it's, and then when I finally got her books a couple years ago now, one of them, the civilization of the goddess, the language of the goddess is another one. And then the gods and goddesses of old Europe, I think. And I started actually reading them and I thought, oh my gosh, I mean, this is, this is so well-researched. I'm not sure anybody like even can really argue with her that well because she knows more than any of them. But because it was interdisciplinary, because she was actually also using her knowledge of mythology, of folklore, of linguistics, of folk music from Eastern Europe because she was Lithuanian. And she was also using her intuition, I would say, with certain interpretations. It just was like too creative. So anyway, I'm going on about this, but it's because I think this was really kind of the the seed at the center of that book that made me want to look more closely um, at all the threads of what she was researching and kind of unpack it um, because I, I really felt like as many others have felt before me that she was kind of returning to me this indigenous Europe where women had a really different, well, I, I would say the genders were conceived of completely differently than we, we are thinking now. Right. And yeah, I just started to see how actually a lot of the stories Many, many of the myths, you know, European fairy tales and myths. It's like I was trying to trace, like, okay, where is, like, the oldest root in that story? What are the pieces that are patriarchal? Because most of it is, like, all these layers of, you know, crap, sorry, <laughs> in there. And you're, like, pulling out the threads, like, the, the golden egg and the thread, you know, that take you back to the imagery of old Europe, which is, you know, all about the life-death life cycle, all about, like, life and rebirth. So... Yeah, that's a really long answer <laughs> to your question. No, it was really wonderful. But it was a, like a burning thing that happened with her. I mean, I almost was at, there was a point in the beginning of the process where I almost couldn't even write about her because I was so angry at the way she'd been treated. I just would start writing like an essay and I just couldn't do it. It was just too much. You know, I just like couldn't get out the right words. And actually, I, I, when I finally wrote that introduction, it came out just all in a push, you know, like this, um, I think I was bleeding like on my moon and it just all came out like in this one beautiful push. And then I dreamed that I met her and thanked her for her work. And I just knew it was her, you know, how that is in a dream. And these three dogs came I was speaking with her and I wanted to speak with her more and suddenly these three dogs came and like kind of jumped on me and and in a nice way you know and Mm -hmm. and when I looked again she was gone and I later learned that she had they were big German shepherds and I later learned that she always had a German shepherd wow I couldn't believe this and I felt as though 
there was something, it was like, you know, there's often this image in Greek myth of three dogs in the underworld and that she came and then they took her back again. And it, I've almost never had a dream like that in my life. So she has something to do with it. <laughs> wow. I'm so glad you brought up Maria Gimbutas. I I sort of found my way to her through Max Dashu. Yes. And yeah, that's that similar time of like the late 60s, 70s got, goddess movement resurgence. Um, and then you mentioned her in this introduction. And uh, anyone who's listening who wants to see more, there's some great YouTube videos of Maria talking. Yes. Uh, that I highly recommend. And her books are excellent. And yeah, I I am feeling that anger too, hearing you speak so clearly and honoringly of her work mm. and how she was treated. I'm so pissed right now. Like I'm like, this woman should be honored for what she's done. Yes, it's so frustrating. And Max Dashu has written some really amazing um, defenses kind of like of her or more generally of the of the kind of body of her work and others that it's inspired. Like, I feel like Max has a really amazing um, academic way of being able to speak to this that I don't feel like I have as much. That's why I think I would get frustrated when writing, trying to write an essay. It's like fiction is my way of dealing with it. Yeah. we well. Yeah. And Max Dashu is just amazing at just like kind of, you know, <laughs> like taking down um, bit piece by piece with brilliance. Um, you know, those who have arguments about her work that are really negative and generally pretty ignorant. I would just add that it seems like often actually a lot of the people who are kind of undermining her work haven't actually read it. Mm. They're kind of mimicking what others have said. It's fascinating. This, this, it feels like a little bit like a witch hunt, you know, yeah. in just totally um, pushed her out. So now like nobody can work that way because you don't want to be called somebody like Maria Gambuta. So it's just very effectively made it like this kind of more instinctive, more creative work in archaeology impossible. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's just so frustrating uh, how, yeah, this like desire to feel valued and worthy and belonging, even in like a culture of, academic archaeology is yeah is creating causing harm in that way it's yeah really frustrating and I and I think that's why I really appreciate your approach to it um like Max Dashu is holding it down in academic responses thank you so much yes, and there's your response you. is really res resonating with me obviously and and I think with other folks who are feeling things in this body so what you're talking about is intuition and what could be called the feminine way, which sometimes doesn't feel safe to even talk about, right? In our culture of like what no, we're feeling to be true, who we're meeting in our dreams, all of it. And I just think it's so important to share that, you know, that you share that you had that dream, share that in Crete you're on these burial mounds and you're feeling these things or wherever you are so that we can all be like, oh yeah. I've got that too. That's okay to talk about. That's okay to trust. Like, I think I'd love to know more about what you're doing in Crete, which actually is a very big question I know, but maybe whatever feels true and powerful and exciting to you right now in, in that way of, of 
as someone who was raised in a Western mind, you know, academic culture to be leaning into this and what your experience has been? Mm, yeah, thank you for that question. And it's such a big journey, really. I think, yes, my, my brain has been very, in terms of research, really academically trained um, so that I, I'm, I struggle all the time to trust that other voice. And I think being here is really helping me um, hugely. So what I'm doing is I am researching a novel that's set in Minoan Crete. So Minoan civilization was actually Maria Gambutas is the, the first person who I really read about Minoan culture from. Um, she considered it one of the last old European cultures. So when she talks about old European cultures, she means the cultures that thrived in Europe before the Indo-European invasions that happened starting around invasion slash migrations, you know, yeah. they were slow, but they began around 3000 BC and they were, so we're talking 5,000 years ago. Yes. We're talking 5,000 years ago when they began in mainland Europe. So they were, this was a really different culture of um, horse riding, cattle herding, like really big cattle herding, sky god worshiping warriors and probably you know mainly it was like a big wave of men coming in first and then checking it out and going back and bringing their women and their cows they were looking for better pasture i and think from where from where were they coming uh yes they were coming from the russian steppe present day so kind of the caucasian mountains and east and i think there was a kind of like a cold spell for like a century, you know, the climate got really cold. And so this pushed people and started to push people East, uh, sorry, West. Anyway. So this was, this was when what we consider like a more patriarchal culture started coming into Europe and in Crete, because Crete is an Island, a big Island, and it's pretty far from mainland Greece. And they were really skilled sailors and the people in the mainland, like these, these warrior cultures, didn't know as much about ships. They just managed to retain their culture here for much longer than what happened in the mainland. So while Indo-European languages, for example, started to be spoken, um, and Indo-European looking cultures, which generally some features of it include like a big sky god, like Zeus, you know, as a really important deity, um, and just like warrior mounds, burial mounds, um, clear hierarchies, celebration of warfare and warrior like culture in general. Um, this just wasn't happening on Minoan Crete for much, much like much later into history. So this civilization survived until about 1400 BC, something that still looked old European and matrilineal. Whereas in the rest of Europe, it had kind of been challenged or infiltrated or, you know, altogether overthrown, um, maybe for even like a thousand years before that in other places. So something about that with Crete drew me here. I'd been to Greece before and really loved it. And suddenly it was just like, well, actually, interestingly, everything about coming to Crete was kind of guided by this more intuitive voice, which despite you know, my love of imagination and fantasy, it is hard for me to truly trust, I would say just from my conditioning and, you know, in our culture. But I, 
somebody actually sent me, like I knew that I wanted to write this book like a couple years ago, probably around the time that I was creating Our Lady of the Dark Country. I knew that there was a big book that had to do with old Europe. One of them was going to be in Greece. I wasn't sure that it was Crete, but I knew that there was something about Crete that I needed to know. And then last summer, I was going through a very difficult time, you know, in a long term relationship, which ended. And somebody sent me this link of flower essences. I think this is beautiful now that we're talking about this, that from Crete on Facebook. And I, you know, it was this little link with an image, like, you know, that often comes with a website link. And it was this image of a beach here in Crete. And I saw this image and I just actually started sobbing out of nowhere. And kind of like that dream that I mentioned of Maria Gambutas, I hadn't had something quite like that happen because I saw it and I was like, I have been there. It's making me get a little tears in my eyes now. I've been, I've been there. I know that place. It was like this full body feeling and I have to go there. I have to go there. I thought like I have to literally go right to that beach. That was kind of the feeling I was having. Mm-hmm. And that night I dreamed that I was in Crete and I was like running down this kind of from this cliff and the earth was like this red color, kind of reddish orange, like it was in that picture. And I was with these other women and we're running down the hill and I like picked up the earth and my hands and I was, I'm here, I'm here, you know, just this like crazy dream. And I was like, all right, I'm going. And then basically so many things since then have kind of um, aligned in that way, just with dreams, with the way the landscape here feels, with the way that I feel like information kind of comes in or things just happen. I don't really know how to describe it, but it began with that. And, you know, I think sometimes when we go through something really intense emotionally, which I've been through from last summer, kind of like this whole year, I think the the trauma, which has been fairly traumatizing, I would say, not taking that word lightly, um, but also recognizing there's much more extreme trauma that people suffer. But in the context of my life, that kind of when you're stripped down to that degree, you just trust certain things differently. This is what I've found. Like, you just kind of don't care anymore if this sounds crazy or doesn't sound crazy, you know? Like, this is what I feel. This is what I'm seeing. This is this is what's lining up one thing after the next, I'm doing it and I'm trusting it, forget the rest. And when that happens, then I think suddenly it's like we enter this other realm a little bit. I don't know what to call it really, but I think part of it is the mind kind of just having to go away Mm -hmm. and following the soul and the heart and the body in a different way. And that can be absolutely terrifying. You know, so there've been like many challenges for me too, of just agreeing to like saying yes to, trust that still. Um, But yeah, Crete is a very powerful place. I would almost like, it's one of these places where it's like, there should be a warning tag on it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like, don't come here unless like, you really want like all the truth to come to the surface (laughs) in your life and to Mm. have to, it's like initiatory in a really incredible way, mm. but not especially gentle, I would say. Mm. But in the midst of you know all the personal things, I'm meanwhile researching Minoan culture, right? As I was saying, in order to write this book set in this time, in this land, because I feel like 
as I was saying, it's the last place in Europe where what what we could call really deeply indigenous, earth honoring, peaceful, like life force honoring cultures thrived in freedom. It's the it's the latest that this was happening. And it just feels really important to tell these stories right now. Like I, I feel like the roots of all Greek myth are here and they're nothing like what we read in Greek myths, which are like heavily patriarchal and really? upsetting to me most of the time. I mean, I just like hate Zeus. I'm sorry to say that, but I just, when I look at the Greek myths now, it's like, wow, this is not, th- these are a record of conquest. Mm. All Everything to me feels like a record of conquest of the conquest of older gods, older goddesses, older like earth forces. I don't even know that people were calling them gods and goddesses, you know, they feel like a, a record of older, like um, honoring of earth spirits that, that got destroyed. Wow. So the book is kind of trying to like dig underneath. It's kind of a slightly ambitious undertaking. I would say sometimes I'm like, what am I doing? This is, <laughs> this is really immense. But so the research is constantly kind of juggling, like really wanting it to be as grounded as possible in the material record and honoring the, like the material work that archaeologists have done excavating things, just like the basic facts, while also not being limited by the lens that they're very often bringing to it, which is looking at what they're seeing from our Western, modern, patriarchal um, point of view, which just doesn't fit what's actually on the ground, in my opinion. And so, you know, there's that whole side of intuition of like sometimes feeling like I'm hearing voices in the stones um, mm-hmm. speaking and and hearing things at sites and just trusting that, trying to hold that as and trust that as much as I trust the archaeology. And that is so challenging, just given, you know, what we're speaking to in our culture and it doesn't feel very safe, you know, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, how much of that comes from, you know, as European women with all the ancestral traditions like burned at the stake, basically, it just doesn't feel very safe to trust that voice. Oh, yeah. But here I am. (laughs) Right. Here you are. Trying to anyway. It's incredible. I mean, it's really, it's blending two worlds. It's, It's creating a story. It's like liberating ancient truths. It's communicating what you're channeling, if that's the word, I don't know what feels true for you. Like, wow. I don't know if I quite channel, but maybe, yeah. I I actually met this incredible woman, English woman, who is a seer, as far as I can tell. Like she she um, really sees things when she goes to archaeological sites. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she sees people. I mean, she sees what the buildings, the clothing. Yeah. And I found myself kind of not knowing what to do with that at first because it's just so other to our thinking, our Western thinking. Like, this is not possible. I don't know. I don't know how this is possible. But um, after a few times of going to different places with her and talking and just like getting the feeling for her, I, I really trusted what she was saying. And how she struggled with knowing how to hold this knowledge that she had and this ability that she just had since she was a child. Just mm-hmm. She just almost like has to block it out generally because it's too much coming in all the time. And 
you know, we were discussing how actually how amazing would it be if if we could hold this kind of skill and knowledge with the same value that we hold the archaeologists? Like what if archaeological teams actually had like a, I mean, this sounds crazy right in our world, but had like a seer on their staff. Like imagine what together they could see Mm. because she's using this like feminine, I mean, if we're thinking of it feminine and masculine ways of, of seeing not like gendered in bodies, but just as like different energies. Do you know what I mean? I do. Then this way of seeing in balance with the academic archaeological way of seeing scientific way, really, we need to bring these two back together. Like, because when you only have the one, you know, just the seer, this is really intense. Like, I mean, there's a reason why there's a lot of ritual space that you create around holding that. I mean, this is intense for a person to be doing. And you, I think it needs to be balanced by the, the, I don't know if I want to call it science, but just the other, the other way, you know, when you bring them into balance together, this is when I think we get a whole picture. You know, I think we can we can go off too far in the quote feminine. Like I do feel this with certain interpretations of Minoan greed. It's like too much, too extreme goddess like utopia, like something that's just too much over there and way too much over the other way too. Right. But yeah, I was we were just talking once, like, gosh, wouldn't it be amazing if what imagine what we might then understand about the past. If, if this was in any way valued, but you're just written off as absolutely insane. If you come and say like, I'm, I'm seeing some women over here wearing white dresses with little gold bands around their waist and their hair is full, you know, they're like, okay, let's take this lady away. (laughs) No, that's, I mean, that's how that would be treated. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is urban myth or if this is true, but I've been told that in the Icelandic parliament, there is someone who speaks to the to the other folk and the land spirits and brings it wow. back to parliamentary meetings. I would I'm gonna fact check that in the show notes. But I think I was told that Anna when I went to Iceland in 2015. Hi friends, Caitlin Brame here with a little fact check for you. I support Becca behind the scenes in her business and with her podcast editing. As it turns out, there is not currently a position in the Icelandic parliament for consulting the land spirits, or huldenfolk as they call them, which roughly and incompletely is often translated to hidden folk or elves. However, there is a story that might have led Becca to think of this. In 2010, former Icelandic parliament member Arne Jonsson lost control of his SUV while driving on an icy, desolate road in southwest Iceland. His vehicle went careening 130 feet off the highway, overturned, and came to rest near a 30-ton boulder. Although his vehicle was totaled, Jonsson himself survived no major injuries, which he attributed to the family of Huldenfolk, who called the boulder home. Three years after the accident, road construction was planned in the area that would disrupt the boulder. So, Jonsson, still in his gratitude to the Holdenfolk who lived there, consulted Ragnhilde Jonsdatter, a known specialist and unofficial spokesperson for the Holdenfolk, who is often involved in protests and activism to protect areas where they live. Jonsson asked Jonsdatter to consult with the Holdenfolk to see if they would be content with a move. And Jonsdatter said they would, under two conditions. One, the boulder be moved to grass so the Holden folk could have sheep, and two, the window side of the boulder had to face the ocean. 
So Johnson, using his own finances, had the 30-ton boulder moved to a location near his home that met these terms. So no, there is no official spokesperson of the Holdenvolk on the Icelandic parliament, though it is the oldest surviving parliament in the world, founded in the year 930, so who's to say there wasn't such a position at one point in time? So I, like, think it's actually possible. <laughs> yes, I mean... I, I hope so. I feel like in places like the U.S. or yeah. you know, England, she's English, it feels right. a little more difficult. We're just so colonized in mm-hmm. our brains. Even we really are. as, like for me, as somebody whose ancestry is, you know, of the colonizing people more sort of. Yeah, what is your still, ancestry? Still, we're all. Um, my ancestry is... A big mix of Europe. Um, actually, 30% of it is different Jewish lineages. Mm-hmm. So um, that's maybe a slightly less colonizing people for the last couple thousand years. Although, you know, in Old Testament times, like BC times, the tribes of Israel, this is a very patriarchal, um, pretty violent religion. Anyway, so it's all... Mm-hmm. <laughs> This, this yeah, stuff what, what goes era way we back in the ancestry. Yeah. Like, wow. Okay, yeah. Um, so, thirty percent Jewish from Russia, um, Austria, Hungary, kind of that area, and then that's that's on my that's on both sides actually. And then my mother line. So, like the tracing, just the mother line is goes back on the east coast of the U.S. to the Mayflower. So, English Puritans, mm-hmm. and then to England. And then I have Irish roots as well with my other grandmother and some German and then probably like Scandinavian mixed that mixed into the English part. Do you know what I mean? Like that's in the ancestry, but it's a little unclear from where. And my guess is that it's coming from England, you know, before the medieval era when there was Viking stuff happening. Right. Invasions. Yeah. You have to look at the migration of. Yeah tribal patterns and weather and war and famine to realize it's never like I'm 80% Irish. It's like, well, there's, there's a lot behind that. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm a mix of um, various traumatized Europe. I mean, you know, I say that like, there's just, when you look at the history of Europe, it's just so violent. It really is. So many of these people just being persecuted by others nearby them, attacked, massacred, driven out of their homeland so many times that this feeling of not belonging, of like exile, of of having nowhere to root, of having no like land that's that's really yours anymore, that's holy. It's like it's been so long. Yeah, thousands of years. It's been so long, it's heartbreaking. And and not to say that then, you know, um, for example, in my Irish lineage, I know that they came to California in the 1860s to Northern California, like in Mendocino, Humboldt County, and were logging and without a doubt were probably in violent and like probably horrible relationship with native people there, yeah. you know, like they were the, they were the, the colonizers and it's awful. Like, I don't, that's something I don't know how to hold. It's just a grief, basically, mm-hmm. that I recognize that that's there. And then it's just this chain of 
hurt people hurting people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think what makes me excited about you being in Crete and doing this work and this book that I can't wait to read is <laughs> that because it is an island and that it lasted, it preserved the ways like a thousand years longer is, is I often feel so much grief in my own looking into mostly the European continent and the British Isles and Ireland to modern day is to really feel the loss, the destruction of that knowledge, destruction of that wisdom of that, those records to really be like, wow, there was an erasure that happened. And I feel hope. I mean, so I'm one of your Patreon support supporters and you have this Patreon mm. that um, supports your work in Crete and also you give us updates. It's incredible. You sang to us by the waters. It's amazing. And um, that's just really, when you announced that Patreon, I just felt so excited because there are so many of us who are feeling that grief of that erasure and mm. you being like, listen, I'm on the ground and I'm, and I'm listening. <sighs> Like I'm trying and it just <laughs> felt like, thank you. Because it's just, when you really think about those thousands of years of campaigns and wars and burnings and heart people hurting people, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's hard. So I'm yeah. just so grateful to that Island <laughs> for what it did and what you're tapping into. Yeah. Thank you for saying it that way. Yeah. I, I think it's it's almost mind-numbingly hard to kind of get your well your mind or your heart around what you're saying just like how much erasure how much like pain I mean often we point to you know let's say the Roman Empire as the beginning of when maybe more earth honoring uh, traditions were starting to be squashed across Europe mm-hmm. but actually you know what we were speaking to before it was way before that I mean the grief really began when I feel into it with Indo-European, like this warrior culture coming and yeah. like in Crete, it began in 1300 BC with Mycenaeans who were kind of the ones we know of from like the Odyssey and the Iliad, this culture, this is Mycenaean, super like warrior happy. And this is way before Rome, you know? So being on the ground here, like I am also recognizing how much Crete has been through as well. Like so Mm. much, basically after Minoan culture fell to Mycenaeans and then various others, it was like they were invaded ever since until the last like uprising against Turkish rule in 1900. So it's been actually like really violent. I mean, it's really kind of interesting to have learned this. I wasn't expecting this. It's been really violent, but at the same time, I'm I'm not quite sure why this is here and not as much maybe in other places in Europe, but maybe I'm wrong about that too. I also feel so much that some certain traditions or even music or way of dancing or eating food or gathering together have not changed. Like sometimes I feel like that, that's Minoan. Like I'm, this is still alive, This th- these little threads of things. Like I feel... Like I'm seeing it in people now and somehow they have held their traditions and their music. And really the music and the dance is really big actually for holding this. When you see people dance, like playing this certain kind of 
music from Crete and dancing, you know, in a spiral. I mean, they're dancing all together, like a hundred people and they all know the steps and these like complicated rhythms going around and around and around, like going into a trance. You just, it's just, it's so old. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure that this is true in other places in, in Europe as well, but perhaps there's something, I don't know. They've been conquered a whole lot here. I'm not sure how it's possible, but there's something special on this island to me. Yeah, well, I've, in my own research, what's been clear is the, the way, the folk ways, the ways of the people have been able to survive empire. And so that's really been dance, yeah. food, music, story. And sure, yes. it it gets updated and, and I mean, we're all the myth makers at any moment. Things get shifted and moved and, uh, and modernized or whatever, but there's still that root, that seed you're feeling that... Um, yeah, feels so important to tap into in this work. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I'd love to know, um, before we close, has there ever, has, has there been one moment ritual you've experienced food, song, dance that has really stuck out, helped, helped you feel that sort of ancient way when you've been there? Hmm. I think, I mean, probably again, what I was just speaking to with the, with the dancing and the music, um, I don't know if it's one specific time, but what I've observed is, you know, this is like, so again, we were speaking about the rhythms of the seasons and, uh, life here being so different than a capitalist way. And there's this very common like thing that seems to happen really all the time. I mean, in all seasons where there's a gathering of people, it's basically for any excuse. They'll take any excuse <laughs> like, okay, maybe it's a saint's day or it's someone's name day or, you know, in the autumn it's when they start making the raki, which is like uh, hard alcohol mm-hmm. in these copper stills. And then everybody's eat, eating f- the foods of autumn, like pomegranates and chestnuts and sitting around eating and playing music for like 12 hours, you know, and this is just like not something that I've ever experienced in my life where I'm like, wait, when did we get here? It's what time is it now? Like how much have I eaten? And you just keep eating because <laughs> there's more food and more food and the music keeps going and going and going. And there's this beautiful tradition with the music where some of the songs, like they're, they're kind of improvising with these rhyming couplets called malinades which are like two 15 syllable lines that rhyme and they're often encapsulating very like old folk wisdom or some like incredibly heartbreaking poetic something they just destroy you if someone translates them it's like oh my god like how Mm. do they even say this i can't think of an example right now Mm. and as people are singing they're like kind of singing the one that matches the moment like just how they feel. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And I mostly have no idea what they're saying unless somebody tells me. And then when you add the dancing into that with these really long songs after eating and drinking wine and like the songs kind of have this cyclical feeling to them. I've had 
a couple experiences where, and the dances are really difficult. So there's a couple that I've learned. And once I get them into my body, it's like your feet are doing this spiral almost. The music is making a spiral and the, the circle of dancers is making a spiral. And you maybe, maybe the song might go for like 20 minutes, you know, 15 minutes. And there's this like group euphoria that happens that feels so ancient to me you know, it matches like that. I just have had times where I felt like a touch of that ecstatic state that I feel like people were reaching in ritual in ancient times here. That's really profound. And it just, it's like, I feel like I'm one of the, you know, the clay figurines that I've seen in museums of women in a circle dancing from 4,000 years ago, Minoan, or um, I'm participating in, these great group banquets and feasts that they have evidence of from, you know, these beautiful ceramic vessels and like food, food, like bones and things thrown around in Minoan ruins that this was happening like in Minoan times, this kind of thing. And so to experience that, it feels like time kind of dissolves. One interesting thing that I would just note about that, that I'm investigating right now, with no conclusions yet, but it's often the music now is really male dominated. Mm. So the men, it's always men playing and singing very rarely women and women are dancing, but the men are often dancing kind of more elaborately. And somebody explained to me that the women, it's like the women are kind of holding, they're almost like the earth holding the, the rhythm and like this certain steadiness but I feel like there's something missing. Like, yeah. it's not there. There was something that the women were doing that's not there now. And I mean, I understand that it, like, it got buried, you know, because for all of Crete's ancient ma- ma- matrilineal traditions, it's it's pretty darn patriarchal now. You know, you really feel that here. So, this is a question for me right now. Like what, what were those dances, those other dances, those ritual dances or songs or music? Where, where are those songs? Like maybe I just am not looking in the right places yet. I don't have the language yet. I don't, but I think something got really deeply buried here too in that way. And it's sad to feel that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm I look forward to your conclusion whenever it comes, if it ever comes because Yeah, I hope it comes. Yeah. <laughs> also, you really <laughs> transported us with that description of that um sort of dance euphoria time travel thing you're doing. Mm, <laughs> I'm glad. So amazing. <laughs> it's amazing and sometimes I'm like, "Oh my god, I don't have the energy for this today." Right. <laughs> like, this is like, it's just, again, like just such a different rhythm of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be eating and listening to music and drinking something. I mean, maybe not wine because it's too much. Like for how long? Like, I don't know if I can do that tonight, but it's just, yeah. this is again, me trying to like find that rhythm in my body that it's just, I'm, yeah, I'm not used to it. It's, it's beautiful and full on. Right. They don't send an evite and they say dinner will be at seven and nope. will complete by 10. <laughs> that doesn't happen. No way. No way. It's like 
maybe if you think it's going to be over at one, it's over at four a.m. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Such medicine there. Oh, such medicine. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And such surrender, you know, like asking to surrender something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Control um, time, time generally. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the plan. (laughs) Yeah. The plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Sylvia. Speaking of time, it just flew. And it I realized did. we've been yeah. talking for like an hour and I, I'm just so appreciative of your words and all that you've shared and educated us on. It's mm-hmm. so very late at night in the hot summer of Greece. I really, really thank you and honor you. And um, I will be posting in the show notes, the books and the Patreon and all the things because your work is so needed and so seen by me and mm-hmm. so many. And I, I'm just very grateful for, for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. And for it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your beautiful questions and reflections. It, like I said before, it makes, this is, you know, this kind of conversation and reflection makes me able to keep going, you know, with the work to know that sometimes it can feel like you're working alone, you know, digging. And yeah, it's an, it's, it's an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I know your time is sacred and I hope this episode infused some inspiration and meaning into your day. For show notes, links, and references from this episode, you can go to belongingpodcast.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to Belonging on Apple Podcasts, and if you have a moment, leave a review. This helps my little podcast reach more listeners, and I would be ever so grateful.